we're steadily progressing towards the comfort of Isaiah 40. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that our warfare has ended, that our iniquity has been removed. She's received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain, the rugged terrain a broad valley, and then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The hope of the Christian life is the promises and the creator who's made them and not our circumstances, not what man can do or has done or promises to do. And that is an abiding message we find everywhere in the book of Isaiah. We're looking tonight in chapter 24 at the turning point in verses 21 through 23 where we see all the nations in anticipation waiting for the great deliverance that will come when Messiah brings his judgment and in one stroke brings correction, judgment, devastation. And the other side of that coin is deliverance and salvation and freedom and blessing. And the question that we're asked everywhere we look in Scripture is which side of that line of scrimmage will you line up on? Are you for the judgment that God brings on the earth dwellers? Are you the one being delivered in their destruction? Are you with Noah and his family? Or are you on the outside of that boat? Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship with God. And we'll get cracking with Isaiah chapter uh, 24. Let's pray. Father, unless the Lord builds the house, we believe with all our hearts. We labor in vain who build it. So we thank you that you're the builder. Thank you that success is your evaluation. If you're pleased, Father, then we don't care what anyone else thinks. If you're not pleased, Father, then it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. So thank you that we can live our lives to please you. Thank you that we have been able to please you because of your grace, that we are pleasing to you because of your son. That the more we come to know your word, the more we're so taken with your grace. Help us live with that perspective. Help us understand it more as we consider the future from these words of the past. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's called prophets of doom and deliverance because there are two sides of that coin. For God to bring deliverance, there has to be destruction. And that is the theme that pervades all of Scripture. When you see God's wrath... Don't just pretend like that's all that's being revealed. The wrath is always deliverance. It's always some method that God is bringing that separates the wickedness from the righteousness so that the righteous can thrive and live. And it is a terrible swift sword when God's wrath comes. But that's what's necessary. 
The great summary of Romans 16.20 is one of my favorite statements of this. The God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is, that is an amazing juxtaposition of two ideas. The God of all peace, using overwhelming kinetic power, will crush, soon crush Satan under your feet. The Lord Jesus be with your spirit. A great blessing and a great reminder, given the hardships and the toils and troubles of this life. And what we call the little apocalypse, the summary of the end destruction that's going to pave the way for deliverance in the coming tribulation. We have uh, an outline that probably looks a lot like this as we've been studying. Chapters 24 through 27 of Isaiah are one chunk, one um, unit of literature. This is from Alec Motyer's The Prophecies of Isaiah. Um, and uh, he's probably got the best expository, exegetical commentary in English on Isaiah um, out there. And what he's saying about what Isaiah is saying seems to be that there is, in his presentation, gleaning on the outside, heading to the, the song of the world remnant in chapter 24, which we saw last time, those that are going to be saved from out of the earth dwellers, the song of the remnant of the people in chapter 27, and then it further next down, the sinful world overthrown in 24, which we saw last time in detail, and uh, the spiritual forces of evil overthrown in the beginning of 27.1 when he talks about um, this mythological language of the Leviathan. And uh, mythological is probably not the right word to use, but it's epic, it's poetic, and it's designed to point to the destruction of the head of the house of evil, as Habakkuk calls him. Leviathan's a reference to the fleeing serpent, and it's not a hard stretch in Revelation 12 to see that the serpent of old, who is also the devil, and Satan is the red dragon of Revelation 12. He's also um, the Leviathan in 27.1. But nevertheless, the waiting world is where we are now, 24, 21 through 23, when Messiah will come and bring devastating judgment. And then there will be the waiting of the people of God in 26, 7 through 21. So these ideas, these themes of waiting, of, um, of overthrow, of the remnant, these are the themes that he's echoing. And he's making his way to the focus, which is Mount Zion, which is glory, in the future headquarters of the coming kingdom of Israel's Messiah. And it's interesting, it's not just the headquarters geographically for Israel, for the promised land that God said he would give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their kids forever. It's the headquarters of that land, but it is also the headquarters of a universal worldwide kingdom so that that's, that nation becomes the capital nation of a worldwide government of nations. And, it, there's, and it's interesting, as you read through Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Daniel, there's never a, a, a removal of national identity. We want to say Babel gets undone by Pentecost because everyone can speak and hear their, you know, God's praises in their language. But nation is not, an, it doesn't get, end, it, it doesn't end. Egypt, my people, he says. And so um, 
that seems to be the picture of this coming kingdom is that you have universal rule over all the nations by the king in Jerusalem. And that king is the God-man who comes back to take his throne. The throne promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 that his son would sit on his throne forever. And that's, that's the focus that this is driving to in the little apocalypse is we, sometimes we get hung up on the details of prophecy. We want to talk about what's the sequence, what's the next thing. That's a big topic in biblical prophecy. When, when is this thing that's prophesied going to happen? And some scholars will say, is it going to happen? Because maybe it's just big language. And I don't go that way. I think that what God said is going to happen will happen. And I think language is effective, and God designed it to function the way he designed it, and so trying to read it as he's written it. But um, we focus on sequence. We also focus on the bad things. There are demon armies that are going to be unleashed, and they're going to do what God allows them to do, as we read in Revelation. And that's horrific. And the Antichrist is going to be... a, a promised, uh, he's going to come with a promise of peace and, and messiahship for the world and the nations are going to worship him as a God and, and that's going to be their doom. And, and God is going to bring great wrath on the nations for that great uh, apostasy. And then Antichrist is going to become a scourge that himself, he will, at about three and a half years into the tribulation, he will turn and bring this wrath. We get hung up on these various pictures of darkness and devastation and horror. After all, the book of Revelation is three consecutive presentations of seven judgments, seven, um, seven seals in the seven seal book, and then the last seal is the seven bowls or vials, and the last vial is the seven trumpets. They telescope out of each other, and I don't know how you would present chronology in a symbolic way more clearly than the last one having seven more, and you would just keep stretching. That's how I interpret Revelation. It's chronological. Excuse me. (coughs) In radio, they have a, a cough button. I don't have anything like that up here. <clears throat> but um, we focus on these dark things, but what Isaiah focuses on, his little apocalypse, is the light, is the salvation side of this great devastation. The tribulation is, first of all, is very important as a summary of the doctrine of the tribulation. It is a time of Jacob's trouble. It is not for us. It is for the earth dwellers who have rejected God. We are in a time of tribulation now. We are going through our times of tribulation, this, this phase. But God doesn't have wrath for the body of Christ. He has correction. He has purification. He has development. We're going through our paces. He's got us in an academy phase where we're learning to rule because we're going to rule alongside our Savior. But that, that tribulation is not what we're expecting in the seven years of Jacob's trouble. That last seven years of Daniel's calendar... Is not for the church. It's not for believers. It's for earth dwellers. And so it's a horrible time, and it's full of, of miraculous devastation, as we're reading. But the other side of that is deliverance, is the cleansing of the land, of the earth, um, for God's righteousness to reign, and it's the removal of the wickedness. Let me illustrate why it's so good for us that God's judgment is so sure. I want to say a thing that will be relevant to very few of you, turns out, but most people in our culture would get this. When I say 
We live in most Isley. You got it. We live in most Isley. Most Isley spaceport. You'll never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Were words uttered by Sir Alec Guinness playing a character with words written by George Lucas in a fictional, fantastical, artistic presentation called Episode Four, A New Hope, Star Wars. You can see that I've used Wikipedia uh, uh, imagery so that I can't be questioned on my copyright usage, even though this is an educational fair use event. But anyway, Obi-Wan said, Most Isley spaceport, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. And in the mythos of our current literature, this is about as close as cultural uh, connection as there's going to be. Everybody knows about this place. They keep making more Star Wars products that feature this place. And it's this backwater uh, uh, hive of scum and villainy. So it's the place where, if you want to go find um, somebody that'll smuggle you past the Imperial cruisers, you can find somebody, maybe a, a, a criminal that's got a good heart. You'll probably find people that'll try to kill you there. There'll be some interesting music. And it'll be a place with as much wickedness as you care to go look for. And in your life and my life, we're not experiencing, most of us, this kind of wickedness, most of us. But I don't know what your experiences are, and I don't know what your families and your friends' experiences are, but I have recently been forced, by virtue of my participation in uh, a youth ministry, I've been forced to learn about the statistics of child abuse in our culture. And it's before we've started saying it's right to molest, I'm sorry, to, um, not to molest, but to, to mutilate children's bodies for their uh, gender care, to chemically castrate them with puberty blockers. Before this became what the doctor said must be done, for the children, so that if you say anything else, it's hate speech or some evil. Before this was true, these are the statistics of child molestation in our country. There's a legal firm, I forget, I think it's called um, Love and something in Fort Worth that has got this ministry um, training that they put people through to understand what we're dealing with, with uh, with predators because they go after young people organizations. They go after ministries to try to, uh, to groom uh, gatekeepers like the adults and to go after the children because, they're, because we need volunteers to work in youth ministries. So that's why I know about this information, and I'm happy to share it with you. I'm sorry that it's true, but I think we should know it. And the numbers are horrific, horrific and staggering. We heard from the SEALs and, and others that came, came back from Afghanistan and Middle Eastern cultures. Uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and, and others, that, that, that there are cultural accepted practices there with, with uh, molestation that, um, that our allies are really our enemies, what the Kurds and others do with children as accepted practices, and we, and we get self-righteous until we know that one in four female children in America are molested sexually before they reach 18 years old. 
one in six boys in this country, in the United States of America. <clears throat> and part of that is because 66% of them do not disclose until adulthood, if they ever disclose. They don't tell anyone. They say children are resilient, so nobody knows. Um, the average convicted male sex offender by one study. Now, these are lawyers putting this out, so they're going to get caught. You know, they're careful. Lawyers are careful with their numbers, so I'm confident to quote these numbers. Based on one study, the average convicted male offender um, who molested boys as his preference had more than 150 victims prior to being convicted or prosecuted. So they're extremely prolific. The average convicted male offender sex offender who molested girls as his preference uh, had an average of 52 <clears throat> molestations prior to criminal prosecution. Average age of first offense by people that have been convicted was 13 to 14 years old when they, the person later convicted at 30, started the spree it was as an as a adolescent. You can say, well, that's just a child. This is how it goes. This is how it starts. That baby, that, that baby is going to grow up to be something. And that baby in development is going to be 13 or 14. And what is that thing? Average age at which criminal prosecution takes place for sexual predators is 34 to 36 years old. 85% of convicted males, child predators, um, say before 18 years old they had their first victim. Majority of the convicted are married with children, men married with children, and it's 90% men, 10% women, so it's not 100% men. The way to identify these people, there's no looking in their eyes. There's no swipe left for criminal, swipe right for somebody that looks like they're okay. You can't tell by looking. Less than 10% of sexual abusers will ever encounter the criminal justice system. So these are the stats of those convicted. Fewer than 10% of the, the monsters are ever known or caught. We live in Mos Eisley. 90% of victims are hurt by someone they know or trust. Giving the lie to the, the stranger danger theory that you teach the kids, and we should, don't don't take candy from strangers, don't get in their van, those kinds of things. That's 10%. We just had a horror, horror case in America. A FedEx driver picked up a little girl, I think down in Texas, and, and, and killed her, and he got caught. That's 10% of these cases. Most of them, the overwhelming majority are known, family, friends. No visual cues to these people. One out of three reported cases are peer-to-peer. -peer. So when we're talking about the numbers, one in four girls, one in six boys, peer-to-peer -peer sexual molestation. 
so in this kind of training, you're, you're facing the reality of a world that, well, I don't, okay, Lord, let's bring the guns, bring the flame, let's do whatever, let's get this going. Sign me up for the two-by-four committee, whatever, to, is there, is there a, wa- a neighborhood watch where we can go help? No, there's nothing. There's nothing we can do except train our children. We can get to know one another and be willing to be known right? In our church family, we've always been so thankful to God for his protection of this group. I don't know if anyone ever heard here. I don't know if it ever happened happened before I came or after, but when I first came here, all the doors were solid, and now all the doors have windows because there's no place in this building. There used to be no place where an adult can corner a child or a child can corner a child. But when we talk about God's coming wrath, God's judgment on the earth dwellers. We need to take into account the whole story. Of course we want his judgment. Of course we want him to rain down his wonderful judgment on evil and wickedness. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in a dungeon. They'll be combined in prison. After many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, his glory will be before his elders. New American Standard. This waiting world for justice. There is coming a reckoning. There is justice. I don't know how it all works out. He's very vague in why he describes it. What this sounds like to me is that at the second advent, Jesus Christ comes back in Revelation 19, and one of the most important insights for you to understand Bible prophecy, Revelation 19 precedes Revelation 20. 19 comes before 20. Jesus comes back in 19 and then sets up the kingdom in 20, or a premillennial reign. He comes back to set up the kingdom before he rules in it, um, which is meant to be sort of a, a humorous, but it is a really helpful thing. Um, there is no post-millennial return of Christ. There's no amillennial scheme. Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom in Revelation 19, and then we see it established in 20. And in that time, there is the binding of Satan. And I think this is what he's talking about. When he comes back to set up his kingdom, the enemy is bound. And then there's a perfect environment with perfect government and humans that are not yet resurrected who come out of the tribulation. And that's the last phase of human history, the first thousand years of the coming kingdom, which we call, because of Latin, the millennium. In detail, so it will be in that day that Yahweh will punish. The verb punish is an interesting word. Pachad can mean to visit. It's very flexible. And so it's kind of euphemistic, and we translate it punish, to visit Upon the Savah, the Lord of hosts, Savaoth, will visit upon the host of the height in, high, in the heights, <laughs> the height on high. Hamaron Bamaron is what that says in Hebrew. And upon the kings of the ground, upon the ground, literally, we could translate Adamai as earth, but it's where we get the word Adam, Adamah, it's dust, earth, dirt. 
And so I've translated ground upon the ground. So it's up at the very high, all the, all the people in power up there and all the people at the greatest, lowest points. And so I think this is angelic and human, all those opposed to him. They will be gathered together like a prisoner in a pit. I believe this is a description of Hades. They'll be shut up in a shut up space. Why would you translate shut up in a shut up space? Well, because he says they'll be shut up, cigar, in, a, in, a, in a, a place that's shut up, a cigar. He says it twice, and it doesn't come out in English, but it's right there in Hebrew. They'll be confined in a, in a place of confinement. After many days, they'll be punished. Another word, another time we get pachad. They'll be passive voice, the fall, punished. She'll be ashamed. It's feminine, so I've translated it feminine. She will be ashamed. The full moon, and it will be abashed, the sun, for Yahweh Sabaoth. See, the Lord of the host, the Lord of Sabaoth, the armies, is the one that punished the host in verse 21. And now he's the Lord of the hosts, the Lord of armies. And that's what, and for you who are new, this is the name I keep saying, Yahweh. In your uh, King James, it might be translated Jehovah. And um, the problem with Jehovah is it's not a real name. It's just not. It never has been. Jehovah is um, what happens when the rabbis tell us that we, they don't want us to say this word. And they put the vowels in for Adonai so that we wouldn't say the way this word is actually to be pronounced. And since nobody's alive now who remembers how they said it before they started this stupid rule, I'm sorry, that's offensive, but I think it's a foolish thing that they've done here based on a misreading of the Ten Commandments. We conjecture Yahweh since there are no vowel points from the Masoretes on how to say this word. And so Yahweh is the Hebrew scholarship best answer, Yahweh or Yahweh, on the pronunciation of the sacred four-letter name of God presented in Exodus 3. Who shall I say sent me? Tell them I am sent you. And it's based on the word Hayah. And this is really important. Yahweh, we often translate it Lord, L-O-R-D, doesn't mean breath. Bronchitis breath or otherwise. It doesn't mean baby's breath. It has nothing to do with all kinds of fun internet memes. Yahweh means the one who self-exists. It's based on the verb Hayah, which means to be. It's the basic verb in Hebrew, Hayah, to be he is. And it's a third person because it starts with a yod. And so it's like his name is he is. It's not to be translated he is because it's not exactly that, but it seems to be based on that. And so what we can do with this for sure is say that we have the one who alone is self-existent, the one who is, and no one makes it that way. That's what he's telling Moses when he says, say that I am sent you. I am. And that seems to be the biblical best explanation for the sacred name, the four-letter name, that is often in your Bible for uppercase L-O-R-D, four letters, Lord. Now, historically, the reason we translate this name Lord is because the rabbis, when they put the Hebrew into Greek in the 200s B.C., 300s and 200s B.C., they translated this name consistently as kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S in Greek, and that means Lord. So we're following the rabbinic tradition of saying Lord for this name, which, by the way, in Hebrew, 
is Adonai, Lord, and that's the vowel points they put under Yahweh here. So it's just rabbis saying, say Lord there. They've been saying it to us in the Greek. They said it to us in the Masoretic text. And now we're saying it in our English when we say L-O-R-D, Lord. But this is the name that means the covenant-keeping God of Israel who is self-existent. And he's called here Yahweh Sabaoth. A Sabah is a multitude or a host, a many, a group of a lot. And a plural Sabah is a lot of them, is multiple multitudes. And so it's translated Lord of hosts. And I think generally it's used in a military sense. Lord of hosts arrayed for battle. So I will usually translate that Yahweh of the armies or Yahweh Sabaoth. He will rule in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before his elders will be glory. This is the best news so far in uh, the little apocalypse of Isaiah, that there is coming the shame to the creation and its curse and its ultimate being freed from the curse is the coming of the Savior. Well, we have to hear from the rest of the story in the Song of the Ruined City. In 25, 1 through 5, you have the next little section in Isaiah's center-seeking arrangement. He says, O Lord, you're my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you've worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Every once in a while in these raging torrents of divine wrath, you have these beautiful statements that remind us which side of the wrath we're on. And then he goes to the wrath, for you've made the city a heap. Are you with God on him bringing his wrath on the wickedness? I mean, I'm ready for him to nuke most Eisley. You've made the city, made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin, a place, a palace of strangers is a city no more. They'll never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. Did you hear the turn? He just turned direction. He just said, you're going to rubble everything and bring a big ash heap. There'll never be the rebuilding of this wicked city. And what's the therefore in verse 3? Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. There's a remnant all over the world of people that will be delivered by God's wrath on the earth dwellers. That's the nature of the tribulation and the final judgment of the nations prior to the establishment of the kingdom, the second advent. For you've been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat for the breath of the ruthless is like a rain storm against a wall, like heat in a drought you subdue the uproar of aliens, like heat of the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. And so this is the, what, what Matyar has called the song of the ruined city, where um, Isaiah, after talking about everybody's in anticipation of this coming rule of the king on, in Zion, what it's going to look like when he comes to establish that kingdom. Oh, Yahweh, you are my God, is a great way to talk to him. <laughs> this is a, a verbless clause that you'll see every once in a while. It's indicated by the presence of an uh, independent pronoun. They're, very, they're fairly rare in Hebrew, but here you go. You are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. And here's why. For you've worked a wonder, plans from long ago. Faithfulness, literally faithfulness, amuna, and trustworthiness, O men. 
Aleph, Mem, Nun. Aleph, Mem, Nun. Hopefully you can see that faithfulness and trustworthiness are synonyms, really tight synonyms that probably mean the same thing. They're based on, these two nouns are based on the same root. Let's camp out here a little bit before we get into the smackdown of the city. God, you are my God. And that establishes certain responsibilities. God is the great creator. He's the great deliverer. He's the source of every good and precious thing. And I know that some of you are maybe thinking he's also the source of, of, or the, the one that permitted some bad things. But let's talk about the things that we have. Everybody take a breath. I'm not going to breathe too deeply because I'll cough. <laughs> a cup of coffee with an old friend. God is the giver of all the good and, and blessed things. There is no friendship without the creator who made people with a need for connection. You name the blessed thing, it's from the creator. And it's all evidence that he loves you. As Benjamin Franklin said, let me paraphrase him and put him out of context. Some of these things are evidence that he loves us and wants us to be happy. I'll exalt you, I'll praise your name, for you have worked a wonder. Worship of God is not to be done in a vacuum of ignorance where you don't know the things of God or the works of God. No, it's to be done in full awareness of what he said and what he's done. We are on the other side of many of God's prophecies having been fulfilled. We're on the other side of the Red Sea deliverance of Israel. We're, uh, we're witnessing um, a miraculous time ever since 1948 in the world where Israel is in the land that God promised them and all the nations are arrayed against them. It looks very much like what God said would happen prior to the coming of our Savior to liberate creation from the curse. The things that God has already accomplished are always supposed to be in our thinking to remind us not only of where we stand now because of what he's done, but what he has also promised he'll do in the future. Christianity is a faith of expectation it's an anticipation. It's on our toes looking for what he said he'd do down the horizon. It's just like Jesus on the cross, not looking down at the shame, but looking out and up at what he said he was going to do. The Father is going to glorify the Son after the cross, and he's going to sit down at the right hand of the Father in glory. And that's the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross and despised the shame in Hebrews 12. And that's our pattern. And so what has God promised you? What is your expectation? You are guaranteed to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, if you have Jesus as your Savior, you are part of we must all. We must all appear before the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.10. You're part of that crew. You get a personal session with the Lord Jesus Christ to stand before his judgment seat where he'll render recompense for the deeds you as a believer in Jesus Christ and dwelled by God the Holy Spirit, the deeds you've done in that body, empowered by the Spirit of God, whether good deeds that please God or bad, wasteful things that displease him. This is your guaranteed 
encounter with your Savior. That's, you know that's going to happen. We also know from the same passage to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is absolutely guaranteed to you if you have Jesus Christ as your Savior. And we could just keep on ticking through all the awesome things that God has promised us. What's on the other side of that judgment seat of Christ? Well, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, if you're built with the right materials and the works that God set in front of you, you get the reward of the, of the inheritance that God wants to give you. It's awesome. And it involves higher responsibility in the next phase and what's coming. And you can say, wow, you know, life seems like it's, um, depending on where you are in this thing, long or short. If you're younger, you think it's long. If you're older, you think it's short. But there you are, the end of three score and 10 plus whatever God gives you. And you say, well, that was quick. There you are at the judgment seat of Christ after the gathering of the church. I don't know how he does this, but everybody gets their encounter, gets their evaluation. And that is the end of the beginning. And then there is forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and just continue ad infinitum, which is Latin for for infinity until forever, that we will ever be with the Lord. And you will not walk by faith because you will be absent from this body, in your resurrection body, I should say, face to face with the Lord, and so will we ever be with the Lord. That's how the rapture passage turns out. Wherever Jesus is after the rapture, we will be with him. And these are the things that we are certain of because God's told us. And so what I'm saying is we have much to constantly say with Isaiah, I will exalt you, I'll praise your name, for you've worked a wonder. Plans from long ago, faithfulness and trustworthiness. And now in context, what is he talking about? For you've appointed for the city to be a heap of stones. Those on the oppressed category are now rejoicing that the oppressor has been vanquished. That's what this is about. That the people who are running the wicked city are out of a job and righteousness has come to reign. There's a new sheriff in town. A town of uninhabitable ruin, that word appointed, set, put place, seem, You've appointed or established that this city would be a heap of stones, an uninhabitable ruin, a palace of aliens from being a city. Foreigners, forever, literally, one will not build it. So you could clean that up and say no one will ever build it again. Alam, forever, no one will build it. Therefore, they will glorify you, a mighty people. And this is the most powerful conjunction in the whole little, little poem, all can. It means, therefore, or as a consequence of what I just said. You did this magnificent destruction. When Prince Philip throws the sword at the dragon and hits it in the heart at the end of Sleeping Beauty, I don't care what else happened in the whole thing. It was worth sitting through all the other stuff just to see the sword hit the dragon. Because the dragon, Maleficent, the evil witch, caused all the problems and threatened everybody's future and destroyed the kingdom and justice was served. And you needed a hero with a good throwing arm and a sword that could do the job. And that's why we like the resolution to conflict. We're made for this. This passage is leading us towards him wiping away all the tears. No more suffering. 
But to do that, he's got to wipe away all the wicked. And that's what we're reading of. Therefore, they will glorify you. Who? A mighty people. A town of powerful nations will fear you. I think this word town is used, um, Kiryat, is used here as a, um, a, meaning a collection, a handful, a collection of powerful nations will fear you. For you've been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in distress, in his distress, a place of refuge from the heavy rain, a shady covering from drought. For the breath, the ruach, breath or spirit of the violent is like a heavy rain on a wall. I think what, you're, what you have there is if you're in the middle of a rainstorm, if you're exposed, um, that's bad. But if there's a wall between you and the rain and it's blowing sideways, sometimes it rains sideways, and it rains and it hits the wall sideways and, and that's shielding you, you're like, oh, thank God that there's a, there's a wall protecting me. It's, it's that there's a defense. And the wicked can blow all day. The, the big bad wolf can be outside and huff and puff. But with the Lord as your refuge... Um, we rejoice. And so here he's been a defense in the, in the perfect tense. It could be translated, you will be a defense, it turns out. But this defense is the reason for the overwhelming firepower, why he will soon crush, crush Satan under your feet, is because of the, the privations of the wicked, because of the harm that's been done, because of the need to shut it down. It turns out anytime God's terrible swift sword comes out in the Bible, look for it. God is delivering. When God brings jo- Joshua into the conquest, he is, he is delivering generations from child sacrifice. He is expunging a wicked culture to stop the bloodshed, and it, he has to bring do bloodshed to do it. And that's the explanation for the Karim War, the biblical exterminations. God doesn't command his people to do that. That's a national entity with a national covenant called Israel at Mount Sinai. That's, that was something he told them to do. But if you look at why, they're his sword, why? Because of all the wickedness and horrors that were going on in Canaan because he wanted to remove the wickedness from them. And what happened to Israel? They started copying the Canaanites. They started doing the same things to their children. Like a heat wave in a dry land, like uh, the roar of aliens, you will humble. So the imagery shifts from the, the, the bad guys are causing the, the problem, like the rain on the wall. Now God brings the, the, the environmental pain. He's the heat. <laughs> a drought in the shade of a cloud, the song of the violent will fade or be wretched. The, the, the wicked can try to oppress you with their heat or whatever the, you know, just imagine you're with these people and basically living on a camp out because they all did all the time. Even if you had a house, there was no siding. Or, I'm sorry, there, were no, there was no um, interior um, um, mud work or whatever. Very li- it was very much like living in a hard stand tent compared to living in a house today. And so just think about how exposed these people were to the elements and when they use this kind of language about weather like a heat wave in a dry land, you're going to humble the roar of aliens. And the song of the violent, which is a drought, has nothing, or a heat wave, um, when a shade of cloud comes along and, and shuts down the heat. So God provides that for them. You really can't end here, even though this is that little chunk that now prepares us for the great song. You have to go to, I mean, it's like we've opened all but the last Christmas present, and it's the big one. 
And that's the big song of verses 6 through 12, the center of Mottier's structure. Let me show you what I mean. We're here. We're at Mount Zion. What we've done is we've seen the waiting world for the coming rule of Messiah on his throne in in Judah and Jerusalem. And we've seen the, the vanquish that God brings his great wrath that we've heard about all through. He brings it because he's a defense to the helpless. And now, what's it like in Zion? So we're going to just read it because I don't, uh, I don't have the time or the translation prepared uh, to do more than just read it in the English. There we go. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. That word banquet is based on the word to drink. And it's always used this way. The word to drink is turned into a noun, meaning a party. And the first use is in Genesis 19. A lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. Which mountain? Zion, where Isaiah is. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, refined aged wine. Did he mention there's their aged wine? And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all the peoples even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. Did you catch the, com- the connection between verses 6 and 7? He's going to serve this great banquet, and everybody's going to be having brisket, basically, because it says it, it literally says um, oily. It's good, they're going to be oilies, meaning oily meat. It's got to be brisket. <laughs> brisket and aged wine, that's probably what you read in verse 6. So that's the party that he's throwing for the humans. What's God having for his meal? In verse 7, he'll swallow up the covering which is over all the peoples, even the veil which is stretched over the nations. He'll swallow up death for all time. The Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He'll remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we've waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Sounds like Psalm 118, doesn't it? This is the day the Lord has made. Psalm 118 is about the second advent. It's about the day that Jesus delivers his people Israel. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab will be trodden down in his place as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. Now that's an interesting change, isn't it? I'm up, I'm all John Boehner up here because I'm tired. (laughs) You should look that up if you didn't get that one. That's a pretty good one. Okay. Why is he screaming about Moab now? Moab embodies all the nations. It's a representation of all the nations in their oppression of Israel. Whenever he uses Moab, juxtaposed to to Israel, to Judah, he's talking about the Gentiles and their opposition. Moab is the nation. You can see physically the mountains of Moab from Judea, from Jerusalem. You can can see Moab. The plains of Moab are the the place where they're receiving the book of Deuteronomy in anticipation of the conquest into the land in Joshua uh, and, and, and Deuteronomy. And so Moab isn't just Moab. It is referencing Moab, but it means all the nations in their opposition to Israel. And this is interesting, the way, the way he describes what happens to Moab. Moab will be trodden down in his place as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. 
Everybody got an image there? There's water, there's straw, there's a manure pile, and there's some treading. He will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. Enjoy that. A little breaststroke. But the Lord will lay down, lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unassailable fortifications of your walls he'll bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground even to the dust. So what you just saw was a little bit of an inversion of the order. Usually it's been destruction and then but God, because God is the deliverer. In this little song, God is the great deliverer. He's got the great banquet. Sounds like Psalm uh, 23, the, the prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you know. But it ends with this judgment. Because of the, the judgment that God brings, there can be the party. Well, um, this world is not my home. The time in which I live is in anticipation, it's preparation for the description that we're having here. These things are future, as we've said many times in Isaiah, they're vague by design. The book of Revelation is 21 chapters. The book of, um, the, book of the little apocalypse is four chapters. Um, and so there's 24, 25, 26, 27. It's just four little, little chapters of poetry. But you have in this vague presentation a couple of really important themes if you're opposed to your creator, that's very bad for you. And it doesn't matter if you understand that. It really doesn't. You need to get this because you can understand this. If you're opposed to your creator, that's going to go very badly for you. If you're opposed to your creator, you're also opposed to his people. And that's part of why it's going to go badly for you. But if you're his people, he's your defender. He's your provision. He's your protection. He's your only hope. And in God's simultaneous act, his single act of, of, uh, of appearance, in Christ's appearance, there is the simultaneous judgment on the wicked and deliverance of the righteous. Our Father, we thank you for these wonderful things that are too great for us. Help us remember that we don't consider ourselves the righteous of ourselves. We have your righteousness applied to us because of the work of Jesus by your grace. We don't deserve this work. That's what grace means. And so we don't consider ourselves personally righteous, but in Christ, connected to him, the righteous one. Thank you for our Savior who lived a perfectly sinless life to give us this eternal life we have now. And help us imitate him as we've been commanded to and equipped by your spirit to walk worthy of our calling, to walk as he gave us an example that we'd follow in his steps, that we would like him entrust ourselves to you, Father, who judge righteously. Father, the pattern of your son is a glorious thing. I ask that we'd embrace it and you'd let us revel, even if we suffer for it, revel knowing we're walking with you in anticipation of that judgment seat. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.